who is Jesus and what does he do for us? It can be yeah. put in different ways. Mm -hmm. His person and his work, particularly mm -hmm. in Protestant theology, the distinction has been made. Or in, in Catholic theology, the person again, or the incarnation and the redemption. Who is he? God Almighty in the flesh. What does he do for us? He redeems us from sin and death. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by a professor and a, who holds a chair of theology, Dr. Bruce Marshall from the Southern Methodist University. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Michael. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be back at Ave Maria. Well, we're glad to have you here. A couple of years ago, uh, you were at Ave Maria and the Aquinas Center of, for Theological Renewal uh, awarded you with the Veritas Medal in 2019. And uh, that's really our kind of lifetime achievement award and lifetime contribution to the renewal of Catholic theology. I was surprised and uh, speechless at the at the great. That was a great honor. And well, I, I, I'm I'm rarely speechless. My my family <laughs> will tell you, but I, I was on that occasion. That's great, and uh, and welcome very much. And that was a very well deserved, um, well well deserved honor. And that time, by the way, for that we had a conference on Thomas Aquinas and the crisis of Christology. And so I really thought today it would be great to. Just try to unpack what does Christology mean, right? Mm -hmm. Words and understanding about Jesus Christ, Christology. Mm -hmm. And what is the crisis in some ways that mm -hmm. we're, we're in the midst of? And uh, it's a great, we ended up having a volume published uh, from that book. And in some ways, really, I think that question, who is Jesus Christ, uh, right? That Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, right? Who do you say that I am? Right. Is really kind of in some ways, I think has been at the heart of your uh, theological vocation yes. of studying and teaching for you know so many decades and has really enriched uh, the church and many students of theology. So, but I'd love to begin maybe with kind of a just a challenging question mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people kind of resonate with today. Uh, when you see the preaching of Paul and the preaching of the early church as recorded in the scriptures, mm -hmm. right? We have this uh, strong confession that Jesus is Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where it says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, Romans 10, 9, right, says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? And yet today, I think a lot of people are somewhat nervous about saying and believing that Jesus is Lord. Mm -hmm. People might find it maybe perhaps embarrassing to say that I actually believe that I found definitive truth, mm -hmm. or they might find it offensive or fear that if they say it, other people are going to take offense. Uh, mm -hmm. So what would you say to people? Uh, how do we somehow understand this kind of the central creed, mm -hmm. the central confession of the New Testament, Jesus is Lord? Uh, how do we proclaim it in 2023? Well, um, we're not going to spend the whole podcast on this, I know, so let <laughs> yes. me try and be as succinct as I can. Uh, first of all, it's very important to remember that the term Lord, uh, which is in Greek, kurios, is a stand-in for the divine name in the Greek Old Testament, which was the uh, basis for the apostles' preaching, and in the New Testament. So when you're saying Jesus is Lord, you're saying that the name of God belongs to Jesus. And that's exactly wow. what Paul mm -hmm. says, right, in, in Philippians 2. Mm -hmm. He will re receive the name above every other name. That's There's only one name, all right? Yes. That's the name of God. Mm -hmm. So that's really the, the basic claim here, that Jesus is God himself in the flesh. Now, he's the Lord, all right? Now, Lord for us means something other than that. It also means... Uh, and maybe it means for most people only being the master, right? Uh, being in control, yes. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But what kind of Lord is Jesus? He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm -hmm. So his is a lordship of service, of love unto death mm -hmm. for those who do not accept him. 
Okay, mm-hmm. for the for the apostles who run away and for the Jews and the Gentiles who reject him, he goes to the cross. So this is not a lordship of domination, but a lordship of love and of service. And I think that touches on a third really crucial point. Mm-hmm. What do we mean by lordship today? I'm my own lord, right? Yeah. I'm I'm the one who gets to decide whatever, you know, about myself and, and often about other people. So it's not really a question of whether you believe in, you know, there are any lords out there. <laughs> it's who the Lord is, okay? Um, is it the, the Lord who came not to be served but to serve, or is it me, okay? I'm the Lord, and, yeah. um, and other people are going are gonna to show my, my lordship, right, <laughs> by serving me and by complying yes. with my wishes. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also just one really quick further point, that when we— we speak of the lordship of Christ. Of course, that's a strong way of, of claiming the, the uniqueness and and the um, distinctive truth, the the unique truth of Christianity in regard to other religions. And that obviously in our day raises lots of questions. But here again, I think that remembering that that the love of Jesus is what makes him the Lord is mm-hmm. fundamental. This is this is not a lordship of conquest but of proclamation, proclamation of the cross. Yeah, that's uh, so beautifully put. Uh, And I I love, too, the way that when uh, Paul speaks about this in Romans, he says that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Right. And so we have both Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, that he was crucified and rose again. Mm -hmm. And so... It's really also a proclamation of liberation mm-hmm. that 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 we live this world under, you know, maybe the specter, the darkness of death, mm-hmm. right? The woundedness of sin, the woundedness of my own ego, uh, and right. Jesus is offering a liberation from that. Right, you're right. Mm-hmm. It goes not through power, uh, but as Augustine would say, right? That you know, Jesus didn't save us through power; he saved us through love, right, right, and through humility. right. Uh, so I think that is really kind of a consolation that, exactly. that, that can really be discovered and, as opposed to kind of uh, the maybe worldly path of mm-hmm. arrogance. Right. So this is a lordship that leads to life through humility, not, yeah. not to death through conquest. Yes. That's wow. Be- beautiful. That's a, yeah. very beautifully put. Uh, so, you know, recently you uh, were asked uh, by uh, the Blackwell uh, mm-hmm. Companion to Catholicism, a new book that's coming out, to write mm-hmm. the chapter on Christology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, one, that's just wonderful to have you here and to be able to kind of share with our listeners and viewers uh, so much of your work that you, you know, have tried to condense into this chapter uh, mm-hmm. for this book. But also, I think it's just interesting for, you know, maybe viewers and listeners who kind of wonder what happens, what does an author do when an author gets asked, just write about Christology, just write about Jesus Christ, right? How do you, how do (laughs) you begin to organize such a topic? What was your process? Yeah. Um, That's a great question. It's um, hard to write an introductory essay until you've done a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. I think that, that, I've been a theology professor for almost 40 years now. And so when I get asked to write this essay, I have to think to myself precisely what's really essential here. Not, you know, what do I want to say or what, what's my own special idea that I think is really crucial. They said 6,500 words. I went a little over, but (laughs) 6,500 words, Mm -hmm. Christology. So what's really essential is I think fundamentally two things. Who is Jesus? Or in the form of a question, who is Jesus and what does he do for us? It can be yeah. put in different ways. Mm-hmm. His person and his work. That's a, a one way that uh, particularly mm-hmm. in Protestant theology the distinction has been made. Or in, in Catholic theology, the, the person again or the incarnation and the redemption. Okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, Who is he? He's God Almighty in the flesh. What does he do for us? He redeems us from sin and death. So this, you know, brief essay, which I spent a lot of time on. I mean, it's, it wasn't real long, but I, I put many hours into it because I, you know, yes. you feel like every word counts, right? Mm-hmm. And every sentence counts and you don't want anything to be wasted. Uh, so I just, you know, said, we're going to just do two things here. Who is Jesus and what does he do for us? 
Wow, that's uh, that's it is really kind of fascinating that it's hard. It's the the idea that right, right, his who he is and what he does are are kind of like they're the you know I don't know they're like it's the inseparable part of right the centrality of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm, right, uh, and that. In some ways, you could think about theology also sometimes goes astray, maybe when it mm-hmm. only focuses on one of those, right? Right, as it, you know, that just merely focusing about who he is, or mm-hmm. merely focusing about what he does, that mm-hmm. with the eyes of faith, we see these as one. And it's also interesting that if you, you know, think about the Nicene Creed, which is actually, you know, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed right. uh, that was revised slightly from 2000, or sorry, 325 to 381, right? Uh, that Catholics profess every, every Sunday, Sunday Mass, mm-hmm. and many other mm-hmm. uh, some Protestant traditions can uh, some Protestant profess, traditions accept it, profess, yes. uh, you know, on a regular basis. That it itself does this, right? Mm-hmm. It says in the Creed, right? I believe exactly. in Jesus Christ, His only Son, mm-hmm. His identity, right? Mm-hmm. God from God, light from light, true God from mm-hmm. true God, begotten, not made. All of these are His identity, mm-hmm. who He is, and then. Conceived about the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. Mm-hmm. Right? And on the third day, rose again. And so all mm-hmm. of a sudden, now we're telling a story, right? And it's this kind of, and, and you know, the, the creed there goes back to the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. which shows up in the second century. Right. These So like very early on, mm-hmm. uh, the proclamation in some ways is that Jesus is Lord and rose from the dead, mm-hmm. right? And it's, so this later creedal formulation even though it's much more elaborate mm-hmm. over years, kind of goes back again to that initial confession that we mm-hmm. see already written about in Paul. So mm-hmm. just kind of fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, even before we begin to talk more about what he says, can you say anything more just about kind of, in some ways, right, the uniqueness of Jesus simply because, you know, we approach him in this twofold manner? Let me make sure I'm an- answering your question. So if I get off on a track yeah. that's not what, what interests you, just let me know, no and we'll, we'll get on a different track. So the uniqueness of Jesus, first of all, is that he is Lord, which the, the creed and the, the Catholic tradition unfolds by saying he is true God and true man. Okay? And as you put it, the creed tells a story that begins in eternity with yes. with the yes. coming forth the generation as a slightly more technical term of the of the son of god or the word of god by the father the word coming from john 1 and then that person the eternal son of the father for us men and for our salvation being conceived in the womb of the blessed virgin by the holy spirit and becoming man so the two things are intimately connected. No other human being is is begotten of the Father in eternity. Yes. No other human being is that person conceived in the womb of Mary. Each of us as a human being is unique. Okay. Each of us yes. is mm-hmm. an irreducible, divinely created individual who cannot be exchanged or confused or identified with any other individual. And that's true of us as well as of Jesus. But what makes Jesus unique is really spectacular, right? I mean, it really, really uh, unusual because Jesus is first and foremost eternally begotten of the Father. He's the one who comes forth in eternity from the Father as the Logos, as the Son of God, who then becomes flesh. And that yeah. makes him totally unique, you know, in the, yeah. in the universe, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, no other, not just no other human mm-hmm. being is true God, no other creature Mm-hmm. is or ever will be who this person is, namely God become flesh. Yeah, I think that's so, uh, it's just so fascinating again to, I think sometimes we, G.K. Chesterton mentioned uh, once as 100 years ago, but in a kind of somewhat post-Christian society, people are so familiar with Christianity that they think they know what it means, but mm-hmm. they have no idea right. what it's actually saying. Right. And so, you know, people will often think of Jesus just as another human being and then kind of, uh, and then totally misunderstand the Christian religion, but they've mm-hmm. never taken a moment to actually consider the uniqueness of right this claim that right. uh, his death can be so significant, but what he does is related again to who he is, mm-hmm. because he is the one who comes from the Father mm-hmm. from all eternity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, anyway. I really appreciate your you know summarizing that. Now, kind of a question I think mm-hmm. that people 
you know, and, and you address this again, what does he do, as you put it, what he does? And one way or another, it seems to me this has to uh, center around redemption. Yes. Somehow Jesus's death and his resurrection does something to us. It somehow puts us in a right, better relationship with God than we were before. And so, you know, you've obviously taught, I'm sure, you know, many, many, you know, thousands of hours around the topic <laughs> right. of redemption. Right. Uh, but what would maybe, if, if you could say kind of what's one predominant misunderstanding of redemption and what's one way you found helpful to teach yeah. and to share with others kind of the the proper intellectual reception of mm -hmm. this kind of confession mm -hmm. of Christ's redemption, our redemption in Jesus Christ. Okay. So there are, I, I think, actually uh, several significant misunderstandings of yeah. redemption. I won't go into, you know, as you said, you asked for one, so I'll give well, you one. When I was teaching an adult class in my parish, um, oh, close to 20 years ago, not long after we entered the church, one of the people in the class was saying, we have sinned and somebody has to take the hit. Okay. Yes. Somebody has to suffer the penalty. And I think that is something that can be understood in a, in a benign way, that can be understood in a scripturally and, and theologically acceptable and, and resonant way. But, but it can also be a misunderstanding, namely that God has to punish somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And that why, why Jesus' death redeems us is because God carries out his punishment on Jesus instead of on us. I think that is a misunderstanding. There is a penal character to... Uh, to death itself, yes, yes. But I mean, through sin came death, mm -hmm. right? Jesus, being God incarnate, doesn't have to die. So I mean, that's a, a thought that should give one pause. But yeah. he doesn't have to die, and mm -hmm. so in as he says to us, he teaches us in John ten, no one takes my life from me; I lay it down. Okay. I lay it down for you, for your salvation, okay? And I take it up again. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus does on the cross is indeed accept the penalty of death that we have incurred, but that not, is not in and of itself what's redemptive. What's redemptive is, and I think this is really fundamental, that he offers to the Father, he offers to God a gift of infinite value. So when St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, talks about the cross, and he uses the technical term satisfaction, when Christ makes satisfaction for sin on the cross, he doesn't say he pays the penalty. Hmm. What he says is his charity, Christ's human love for the Father, is so complete and so intense that God values it more than he hates sin. Yes. He, that, mm -hmm. the, that Jesus gives to God something of such value that for the sake of Jesus' offering, yeah. of Jesus' gift to the Father, God will treat us who enter into Christ through baptism as those who have offered this gift. You know, he will forgive yeah. us. So that to me is, a, is really at the heart. The redemption is such a complicated and, and yeah. rich, I mean, mm -hmm. beautiful teaching, you know, sort of inexhaustible teaching of the faith. Yeah. Um, but one way of getting at, you know, a good way of looking at it and not so good way is to contrast love or charity with penalty, okay? Yeah. There is a penal mm -hmm. aspect, but it's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is mm -hmm. the charity of Christ. Right. Jesus's love, ultimately, right, for us and for the Father. Right, exactly. Uh, is what makes redemption. Make, is what that really is redeems, what the, redeems human the human race. And then he takes right. on all of the kind of almost, it's not so much that, right, all of the punishment, mm -hmm. all of the natural consequences of our right. sin, of which our is sin. Right. hunger, thirst, pain, right. death. you know, right. death. Right. right. And so uh, instead of thinking about it, almost in a human sense mm -hmm. of God being angry and wanting to punish someone, mm -hmm. which seems, seems extrinsic. Mm -hmm. right. Instead, Jesus is really solving the intrinsic problem mm -hmm. of human nature, which because of its wounds mm -hmm. is fundamentally alienated from God, mm -hmm. from one another, and from really from ourselves. Yes. 
And so, right, so Jesus, in a certain sense, right, it's that, you know, it's the offering in love of of everything that he has yes. to the Father, which then brings that about into kind of right. that, that reconciliation, that right. communion, right, which that when we then, right, confess yeah, with no, our right, lips right, and believe yeah, in our hearts, right. and right, and we are baptized into mm. that death and resurrection, yeah. Right then, that 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 love and communion mm-hmm. that is present in Christ up to the end, mm-hmm. right, then begins to become our mode of right. relating to the Father, which in some ways, which is that love we call right sonship, right? To right, exactly, into, right. The, the yeah. love of true charity, right, of self-giving, yeah. uh, to love for God and and others. Um, there's a verse I use in the essay that you know we began with for the, for the Black Hole Companion to talk about this uh, from Romans five, uh, Romans five eight. God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, mm-hmm. Christ died for us. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So Christ's death is not first and foremost God's punishment of anybody, but mm-hmm. it is God's love for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how does God love us by Becoming flesh and yeah. in his flesh offering up his own divine and human reality for our salvation. Yeah. So Aquinas was pretty smart then by putting the focus on charity. Right. Right. Absolutely. Because you see in Romans 5 8, God shows his love for us. I think mm-hmm. in what? First John 4 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's not that we loved God, but God loved us first and then and gave his son as an offering for our sin, a propitiation. Yeah, right. Hilasterion. Right. right. And then yeah. John 3 right. 16, right. Very famously, at least at, you know, yeah. U.S. football games. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, right. God, for God so loved the world, the world right. that they right, gave, he his, gave only his only son. son. Yeah. Exactly. That all who believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it's kind of yeah. right there in the heart of the gospel proclamation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, Maybe at times we kind of reinterpret that in 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 a way that overemphasizes the punishment, yeah. and then that can kind of like well, I mean, it's nice that Jesus got punished for me, but I'm still mm-hmm. kind of afraid of God. Yes, right. Like, you know, I'm not. Right. It's not just a right. healthy fear; it's actually like terror. Yeah, yeah right. And that yeah, seems yeah. Servile to be the fear, actual. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to overcome. Exactly, is the fact that we are. We have to stop being like Adam and Eve. Exactly. You know, hiding from God because we are afraid of him. But exactly. we have to recognize that right, his love for us is much greater. Exactly. I no longer call yeah. you servants, but friends. For yeah. I've told you everything I've heard from the Father. I mean, that Jesus invites us into his own intimacy with the Father. But for us to enter that, there has to be a an overcoming of our, mm-hmm. you know, our problem. I mean, of our of our brokenness, yeah. of our woundedness, as you put it earlier. And so that's the redemptive aspect. But the redemption, the goal of the redemption is that that filial, that childlike uh, love for the Father that that we have in Jesus Himself. Yeah, and and we began the episode. You mentioned that one of the problems with confessing that Jesus is Lord is that fundamentally we live our lives. Uh, certainly in a state of sin, yeah. as uh, I am Lord, yeah. right? And so right, that exactly. kind of is what the love of Christ can do, is it can, you know, like mere moral effort, mm-hmm. mere willpower will not avail right. to dethrone my ego. There you are. Right? And so that, in a certain sense, is what exactly. what, is, is what Jesus does. And that's why, the, that's why, in a way, the death matters, right? Because... My ego has to die. Has to die, right? Yeah. I've been crucified with Christ, um, yeah. says Paul, right? And um, it is no longer I who live. You mm-hmm. know, that that self has been slain. Yeah, no longer um, I who live, but Christ, but Christ who lives, lives in, in me. me. So that exactly. Uh, that's no, so beautifully put. Well, let's we're, we're going to take a quick break, okay. and when we get back, I'd love to hear and maybe have our our listeners and viewers hear a little bit about your story. How'd you get interested sure. in studying theology and really focusing on this sure. question? of the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. Happy to do that. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. 
Welcome back to the show. And today, uh, my guest is Dr. Bruce Marshall, uh, who holds a chair in theology at the Southern Methodist University in Texas. And uh, we've been discussing Christology. Who is Jesus Christ and what does he do, right? Why has, why in a certain sense has he changed, Mm -hmm. right, you know, the world? Why Mm -hmm. is it that his redemption changes us? Who is he? And so anyway, it's been really wonderful to talk with you about that. And I just wanted to maybe, you know, ask you a little bit about how did you get interested in studying theology? Uh, mm-hmm. How did you end up coming to the Catholic right, Church? Right, Yeah. No, thanks for, uh, for asking about that, Michael. Um, I'm a, a, maybe a little unusual uh, in that, um, as I like to tell my students um, when they ask, um, I've been in a committed atheist, a committed Protestant, and a committed Catholic all in one lifetime. Um, <laughs> So I grew up in a, in a non-religious home, um, somewhat unusually for my generation, it's not unusual anymore, but um, never went to church uh, at all. I mean, uh, throughout my, my growing up years until I went away to college, and I was converted to the faith in college um, in a combination both of, of, a, of a friend who took me uh, to church for the first time um, and of a class I took, actually, which has certainly made it made me aware that what you say in class can have a big impact on other human beings because I'm, I'm here now because of things that a, that a teacher said in class, you know, uh, who really it made such an impression on me. He was a Methodist from Georgia and he he was talking, this was a, an introductory course in religion. We talked about Christianity, we talked about Buddhism in particular, those two religions. But it was clear he was a Christian and he believed these things. And, and he I, I was incredibly impressed with him intellectually and um, and I began to believe, you know, I mean, it was quite, quite a, a dramatic change in my life. And, and I became, became aware that I had a kind of vocation to study theology. I mean, when I look back on it now, it's, it's miraculous. I mean, this all happened in a space of about 10 weeks, you know, mm-hmm. cause we were on this mm-hmm. quarter. So the, 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 the terms are only 10 weeks. So when I went in that fall, I was a music major and wanted to play the trombone in the Chicago symphony. And when I came out in December, I, I said, I'm going to be a theologian. I wouldn't even even have known what a theologian was ten weeks before, you know, wow. and so um, and so I was I was baptized in the Lutheran Church as an adult and was was um, you know a very serious uh, you know Lutheran uh, Christian and and theologian, but I'd always had a strong uh, attraction to Catholicism, and so uh, to make a, a story, I'm I'm happy to tell, but to make it short for our purposes. Uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife had actually been, uh, Sandy had actually been a Protestant minister. Uh, and so she and I together entered the Catholic Church with our daughter, who was seven at the time, um, in 2005. And I've never seen that as anything other than the fulfillment of my baptismal vocation. Uh, I don't look back on my Lutheran uh, years with regret or bitterness or anything. Um, oh, I should have been Catholic. No, this is how... God took this atheist and made him a Catholic. So, well, yeah. that's a that's that's really a beautiful uh, story, and uh, you know, really, uh, you know, blessed be God. Yeah. You know, how, how wonderful <laughs> to uh, you know come home to God the Father, right? right you know, uh, through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit, and to discover the richness of that Spirit's indwelling mm-hmm. in the full-blown mm-hmm. historical Catholic, Catholic Church, right? one right. holy Catholic and apostolic Absolutely. church. Right? What yeah. a gift. So I, I wanted to maybe just look at two different, we were talking a little bit about the redemption. Two other, you know, another more, some questions that I think a lot of people have about kind of Jesus' identity. And mm-hmm. I think it's like people, we think about Jesus' identity. Well, they really don't think about that question, but they're always thinking about that question because they're like, well, was it really hard for Jesus to fast in the desert if mm-hmm. he was God, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't seem, was it hard? Did he, was it? Did it really hurt on the cross mm-hmm. if he's God? Mm-hmm. You know, or sometimes maybe in the other direction, which is, you know, in order to maybe overemphasize the humanity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jesus is just as confused as the rest right. of us. He doesn't really know much what's going on. Right. Some people, right. uh, this is not the church teaching, by the way, but some people feel like he <laughs> right. didn't even know that he was going to rise. Was, they, or they, he, right. You know, uh, didn't know that he was God. They didn't right. know he was God. Right. So right. in some ways, I think people actually struggle with this identity question a sure, lot. Sure, Absolutely. So it seems to me that maybe there are two kind of key 
uh, the church confesses mm-hmm. in her creeds, beginning in the Bible and received in the creeds and the fathers and you know Aquinas and the church today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that Jesus is right two natures in one divine person, so he's mm-hmm. the one eternal divine person of the of the Son, mm-hmm. uh, who always exists in his divine nature and then assumes to himself mm-hmm. a human nature, nature. right, uh, and therefore has both the fully human nature and the fully divine nature. Uh, and one divine person mm-hmm. in whom both natures subsist. Exactly. But then you have kind of like two major heresies that begin to show up and, you know, they percolate around, but in the fourth century, mm-hmm. uh, you have one, which is Nestorianism, mm-hmm. uh, which is the idea that there are kind of two persons in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and the church responds to that. But could you just say a little bit about what is Nestorianism? Sure. Why might it be attractive and why... Right? Did the church say that actually, no, this is not attractive, it's destructive of our faith? <laughs> right. So Nestorius was the, uh, the bishop, actually the, the patriarch of Constantinople in, in the uh, late 420s. And he preached some sermons saying that Mary is not the mother of God, or the Theotokos, the bearer of God, that she is the bearer of Christ the man, but not the bearer of God. And he made a sort of obvious observation, and but not any less astute for that for it being obvious. No one gives birth to someone older than herself. Okay, <laughs> so how can Mary give birth to God? Now Cyril of Alexandria, and I talk about this a little in the essay that you, yes. uh, you referred to. Cyril of Alexandria, Saint Cyril, got wind of this. He he's down in Alexandria in Egypt, and. He, he's the implacable opponent of Nestorius. And his fundamental concern is exactly the one that you articulated um, when you said what the teaching is, that there are not two sons. There's not a human son and a divine son. Rather, there's one son and Lord Jesus Christ who has our humanity in all of its fullness But everything that belongs to that humanity, everything that this human being undergoes, everything this human being does and undergoes is done and undergone by the eternal Son, by God himself in the person of the Son. And if you don't think that's the case, then you can't think that we are saved in Christ. Wow, say more. Right. Well, because... Christ saves us precisely by, and this is a point that Cyril got from Athanasius in the 4th century and really plays up, Christ saves us by, if you like, I'll put it in in non-technical terms, by permeating our humanity with his divinity, by deifying our humanity. It remains human, it remains humanity, but he fills it with divinity. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is the the teaching of deification or divinization that you have certainly in the Eastern Christian, but also in the Western or Latin Christian tradition. It's in St. Thomas, it's in Augustine very strongly. And so what St. Cyril says in a very striking way is, the flesh of Christ is Mm life-giving. And he makes a direct connection to the Eucharist. The flesh of Christ that we receive, that we touch in the Eucharist, is life-giving flesh. And so it cannot be that it's simply the flesh of a man, of a human being. He is a human being, but it's the flesh of God. In other words, St. Thomas puts it, the carodei, the flesh of God which we touch, which comes into us in the Eucharist, which gives us life, which is life-giving, transforming our mortality, our, our decaying humanity into what has eternal life. So Cyril was so adamant. I mean, he was a tough guy. I mean, he didn't he didn't play uh, play around, and he was very adamant about you know con- condemning Nestorius's position, which did happen both in 431 at Ephesus and in 451 at Chalcedon. But his his concern was not, as some folks like to suggest, you know, political, or he just wanted to get his own mm-hmm. way. It was yeah. very deeply tied to, you know belief in redemption through Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that if we're going to live forever with God in heaven, then something about this 
has this, to, this has moral to change. nature has to change. <laughs> has to change. It has to somehow begin to participate, become sharers in the divine nature. In the divine nature. Right. Teaches. Or as St. Paul so. says in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal nature must yeah. put on immortality. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, can't, mm-hmm. it can't happen, um, you know, f- with, with things the way they are. There has to be a change. That's right. And, and in some ways, too, you could think about it as well. If there were two persons in Jesus, then... Who died on the cross? Right. Because in some ways, clearly the man, Jesus, died Dies, on the cross. Right. But did the divinity die? The right. answer would be no. Right. But there are two different people that are, as a right. you know, kind of idea, it would be like more like a jockey and a rider. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> perfectly together in love, but right. really separable. Right. So when the horse dies, the jockey does not end, die. Right. Which means then we're not saved because, right. uh, you know, that, that offering was not made by God. Right. Because... You know, if the offering is made by a man, it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. It is beautiful and wonderful, and we could sing songs and have mm-hmm. poetry about a great, <laughs> right. about the beauty of human love, right? right? But we wouldn't find eternal life, right? Right. So that's a, a really. I also I think I remember uh, Cyril comes up with the um, also the beautiful point, which mm-hmm. is that you don't give birth to people that are older than you. True, but you also mm-hmm. don't give birth to natures. Right. You give birth to persons, persons. and that's it. Therefore, Mary gave birth to the person, the person. Right. of God, right. the person of the eternal son who now right. is born. So you right. have one son with two births, right. exactly. not two sons. Right. And, and that makes so we can confess that she is the mother of God, exactly. which as a Catholics, we celebrate on right. January 1st, right. right, eight days when Jesus gets his name mm-hmm. after being born, when he is circumcised, then we confess right that mary is the mother of god because of who jesus is for right. our salvation right and this is very explicitly taught particularly at the council of chalcedon that yeah. that um he is born eternally of the father on account of his divinity and he's born in time of the, of the mary theotokos yeah. the, the virgin theotokos on account of his humanity um yeah. but exactly that you've, mm-hmm. you've hit the point that's so fundamental which is often missed in contemporary um, and not only contemporary Christology, um, but was Cyril's fundamental point. It's one and the same hypostasis in the Greek and, the, uh, and person in, in Latin and English, one and the same individual who is both God and man. It also means when we come to Jesus, we kind of then are coming to, to God. Yeah. To God which yeah, is absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So, so maybe moving almost kind of like in the other direction, right. then, if we're not going to split Jesus, we might confuse Jesus into right. one, which is called uh, the heresy of like monophysitism. Yes, right. And right. Uh, monophysite or one nature. One nature. That's, yeah, that's Greek so, for one nature. Right. So, yeah. Right. Um, again, maybe could you say a little bit about what's attractive about monophysitism or yeah. like, why might we. Or, you know, kind of why might Catholics or Christians fall into the idea that Jesus only has one nature and it's presumably the, the, the divine, divine nature, nature right? Absor- kind of just absorbs mm-hmm. and kind of, uh, right, you can't even see the human nature anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just dissolved into the divine nature. Yeah. yeah. And so, right, why might that be attractive and why, why, why did the church again say that if... Um, I love, by the way, there was, there was a book that was written a number of years ago, and it was called The Cruelty of Heresy. And the idea was that it's not like the church, it's not like heretics are fun, and the church <laughs> wants to get rid of all the fun. Right, right. But it's the idea that if you believe heretical teachings about, mm-hmm. right, the faith about mm-hmm. God and, mm-hmm. and his plans for us and Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, you will actually harm yourself and other and others, people yeah. because you will make life harder than it already, than it already is. is right that's that's uh, exactly so, right right so ultimately yeah. right why does you know the church in a certain sense and eventually mm-hmm. or like or why might people be attracted to you but also why does the church say wait a second no 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 don't this would be re- this will cause really harm to mm-hmm. believers if they hold this view yeah so nestorius to go back to him for the yes, moment please. for contrast Nestorius, the worry about him is that we don't really have a divine savior, that Jesus is a human being and the divine person is a separate entity, okay. right? And we talked about that. Yes. So the, the attraction then of the monophysite view is that absolutely we have a divine savior and then mm-hmm. it's, it's right in front of us. I mean, yes. this guy raises the dead, you know, this guy walks on water. I mean, uh, you know, this guy created the heavens and the earth, um, you know, he's the one through whom all things are made. And yes. so, you know, Colossians 1, John 1, uh, you know, uh, Ephesians 1, these texts that really make 
a very strong and absolutely crucial fundamental point about the the eternal purpose of God in Jesus Christ and the divinity of Christ that is the the basis of everything that Christ does in time, um, that's obviously, the Monophysites say, we're on board, you know, we're we're good. (laughs) But of course, this is one of the striking things about about, uh, Catholic teaching and then, you know, uh, deviations, whether in one direction or another, namely that it's usually the same problem with the one as with the other, except from sort of for, an, for the opposite reason. So going back to Cyril, the flesh of Christ is life-giving, right? Because it's the flesh of God. Nestorius sees that no, it's, it claims that there's no, no real contact here. The flesh of the person of the, who has the flesh and the person who has the divine nature are not the same. Uh, so it's not the flesh of God. So there's no contact. There's no yeah. divine saving contact with our perishing mortal humanity. The Monophysites say Jesus is God, but they they don't give him full human reality. And so again, our humanity, the humanity we have in common with the Blessed Mother and with every other human being, never actually gets in touch with the logos it's something less than that it's something Uh, that isn't mm -hmm. fully human Mm -hmm. um, something that can't die or something that doesn't have to use an early uh to us maybe strange you know monophysite idea that the logos is the the superior part of the of the human being jesus so jesus is flesh uh human soul and divine spirit, you know, mm-hmm. coming together mm-hmm. in one and, and rather than flesh, human soul and human spirit, you know, mm-hmm. so he's, he, he replaces a part of us with his divinity. And the mm-hmm. church is very emphatic. If he's not a true human being, we're no more saved by that than if he is a true human being, but not a divine person. Right. Yeah. And there's that kind of, I think, uh, one of the lines that gets mentioned, right? That which is not assumed. Not assumed is not healed. healed. Yeah. And, right. right. So if only if the divine son assumes our full human our nature full human nature is our full human nature healed, which means yeah. both our body and all of its defects. Right. Uh, but also our soul our, and our soul, spirit, our will, right. 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 A full human will and a full human intellect, because mm-hmm. what really corrupts man <laughs> right, is of course. our rebellious will. Right. right. Exactly. And so, well, that's a, you know, a very beautifully put. So just maybe a, you know, kind of a question, what are some, when you, yeah, again, you, you've you've taught so many students. Uh, you know, you've 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 been active in you know in 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 the church and among theologians. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of maybe just what do you like today on the street with the students you teach mm-hmm. with the students you think about that they're going to go be teaching? Mm-hmm. What do you think, in a way, are some of the great you know challenges to receiving properly and fully and meaningfully? in a way, the, uh, these kind of faithful, creedal teachings about Jesus Christ? Um, I think there's a kind, uh, it's, there, there are a bunch of things, all right? So just to kind of make it clear, this is, what I'm going to say is not the only thing that, that's on the table here. There, there, are, there are a variety of problems. But I think the, the notion um, that w- Jesus is true God he is God Almighty in the flesh, that in coming into contact with him, we come into contact with God himself. That is, it goes back to something we said a good while earlier, you know, and what you mentioned from Chesterton, that's the scandal that that even people who want to be faithful Christians Mm -hmm. uh, in our own time often find very hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, That Jesus is a, it's often not, again, it's not necessarily put in theologically sophisticated terms or like, I deny that Jesus is true God. It's rather, that's just not on the table. It's not what we mm-hmm. think about. Jesus is a, is a loving companion, which is true. Jesus is a, is a teacher of the right way to live, which is true. But, you know, I, before we started our podcast, I was over in the beautiful chapel you have here um, at Adoration and, you know, we had to had to sort of win my way in to find a place because it was crowded, uh, which is wonderful. And if Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh, then when he is bodily present in the Eucharist, 
I'm staring at the creator of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. Now, in a veiled way, as as a great hymn, uh, prayer after mass says, you know, um, I hope to see face to face what I now see through a veil. But still, it's he is there. Yeah, and. I think for a lot of us, um, you know, a lot of folks in our contemporary world, that's just too much, you know. I mean, that's just a bridge too far. And, it, mm-hmm. and, and of course, it, not, not in, again, I don't think it's primarily the issues are intellectual. I think it's, if that's true, I've got to give everything, you know. Mm-hmm. If I've got to, I, I can't hold anything back if that's really true. I mean, if, if Jesus is a nice guy who lived a long time ago, um, you know, a, a helpful teacher and, and companion, maybe even a companion who's in some way present to us now. You know, I, there are parts of me, you know, in my life that can be sequestered from Jesus. But if Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh, then, you know, in Augustine's beautiful phrase, he's closer to me than I am to myself. And mm-hmm. I can't get away from him. And <laughs> I have to live my whole life, you know, even the secret parts of it uh, mm-hmm. in, in union with him and answerable to him, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and of course then to his church. So maybe that's a big part of it, that if we, you know, if we really confront what just the straightforward teaching mm-hmm. of the church, you know, that Jesus is yeah. God Almighty in the flesh um, and always has been the teaching, if we really confront that, it causes it causes a lot of, of problems for folks in our culture, right? Yeah. That I mean, and one problem it causes, unfortunately, you know, um, is that um, if if Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh, and Jesus says, um, "Whoever divorces his wife commits adultery against her," well, that's God talking. Okay, <laughs> so that's not just the opinion of a of a of a Jewish guy you know, or Jewish male who lived you know two thousand years ago, or you know, as one. <laughs> person whose um, name I won't give you, but who, who teaches theology in an Austrian, Catholic theology in an Austrian university said to me, well, I mean, Jesus didn't really know what we know about, you know, human relationships and whatnot. <laughs> um, and I yeah. said, well, you know, I mean, if you think he's true God, then you, you have to believe that he does. And that, you know, to put it in slightly more technical terms, that, that he has in his own uh, soul, a beatific and infused knowledge of everything that can happen to a human being, you know. Yeah. So, if Jesus is true God, then a teaching, you know, like that, which the, the church has thankfully, you know, stuck to through thick and thin, that's non-negotiable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's not something that, you know, we can we can view as time bound or something. So I think that the kinds of things that bother the culture about, uh, I mean, to generalize it, to bother the culture about Catholicism, just all hit you like a ton of bricks, you know, when you see that, when you accept or see the, mm-hmm. that the claim is that yeah. this Jesus is true God here. So what he says goes and you're answerable to him. And um, that's uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's particularly uncomfortable, you know, in our world. Yeah. It's also one of those things, I think it all depends in a way. Uh, Chesterton one time spoke about the creed in his Everlasting Man. So the creed is like a key. It has a definitive shape, right? And that annoys people. Mm-hmm. The right. shape is somewhat arbitrary because it's historical. Mm-hmm. And But he says the shape, like a key, opens a door. Mm-hmm. And so he says the whole question depends upon if you think you're in a prison, then it's awesome to find a key. If you think you're drowning in the ocean, Mm -hmm. then to find a rock that is firm, that Mm -hmm. is not like the rest of the ocean, there is something here that is not ocean. And in a way, that's kind of what we discover in Jesus Christ. Everything else is, it it, it is, you know, human life is very complicated. It's It's hard to find, like, the real direction in life. How do you solve political issues? How do you solve familial issues? All these different things. And yet... All of a sudden, I feel like we're kind of in there, we're treading water, and yet something we stand on is rock, right? Right, And that, to a certain extent, is ultimately God and Jesus Christ passed on to the church and something that we believe, right, will perdure into heaven. So thank you so much for talking about that. I know that's actually the, uh, in this book, uh, Thomas Aquinas and the Christology, or Crisis of Christology, that we published a couple of years ago with Sapiencia Press. Mm -hmm. Uh, your last uh, chapter mm-hmm. is in some ways addresses that beautiful right. theme. Right. So, and by the way, for uh, viewers or listeners who are interested, uh, if you go to 
Catholic University of America Press, mm-hmm. cuapress.org, and you use the code, uh, listeners of the Catholic Theology Show may get 20% off by mm-hmm. typing in CT Catholic Theology 10. CT 10. CT 10. All right. All right. Uh, so as we're wrapping up, I'd just like to ask mm-hmm. you three quick questions yeah. that I try to ask most of my guests. So what's a book you've been reading? Um, I've been reading a book my wife gave me for Christmas called Japan 1941 uh, by a mm-hmm. Japanese-American scholar um, about what was going on inside the Japanese um, hierarchy, as it were, the uh, political and military structure leading up to Pearl Harbor. It was very fascinating. And you have to know Japanese to write the book. So um, wow. that's very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, That's great. And, uh, you know, among many, uh, could you pick maybe just one? daily practice that you, you know, have incorporated uh, to help find meaning and purpose in life? My spiritual director who died um, uh, in December um, on the Feast of St. John of the Cross, uh, Father Rock Koretsky, who was mm-hmm. a Cistercian monastery in Dallas. With a, he was one of the last Hungarians who founded the monastery. He, um, he was a fantastic spiritual director, not least because he would tell you the truth. He, he didn't, he didn't, um, he was a deeply compassionate and loving human being, but if he thought you were barking up the wrong tree, he would tell you. And he said, do spiritual reading every day. Hmm. And he mm-hmm. said, if you can't think of what to read, read the, the biblical and um, second reading of Patristic Patristic reading from the breviary. Do that every mm-hmm. day. The office right? of readings, yeah. yes. Don't necessarily, he said, you, if you don't have time to do the whole office, yeah, that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'd say, well, I do morning, evening prayer. So that's great. Do spiritual reading, and I've found that incredibly helpful. I mean, wow. and I, 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 to the point where I, I feel sort of disoriented. You know, if mm-hmm. for whatever reason I had to get up early and I you know, have to do something and I can't, can't do do the reading first thing in the morning, and you know, and, and pray with you know the reading and so forth. You know, it takes a half hour um, to do the reading with care and then then pray. I feel like I. I'm, I'm sort of treading above you know, 20,000 fathoms and I'm about to sink, you know I mean? Wow. Uh, so that that's one piece of advice I've, I've, I've hugely valued. Beautifully put. And uh, just very quickly, if you might, yeah. uh, this is a very hard, very big question, but maybe you can give a, a quick answer is, what's one uh, predominant, maybe kind of false view you had about God? And then through your studies and things, what's kind of the truth you discovered? Oh, that's very simple. When I was uh, converting to the faith back in college, as I mentioned, um, I thought God only liked uptight people, you know, who, <laughs> who, uh, who didn't like me. And mm-hmm. I found out that, no, God, God actually loves sinners, uh, yeah. of whom I am the first. So wow. that, was, that, was, that very, was my conversion in a nutshell. <laughs> well, that is uh, so beautifully put. Uh, and, and what a great place to end on. Uh, not only right who Jesus is, but that he teaches us something worth knowing, that he right. loves us and, right. and you know, in, in our very uh, sinfulness right. Right. Uh, and comes to meet us there. So, well, Bruce, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Michael. I really enjoyed it. And again, for our guests, this is Dr. Bruce uh, Marshall, and uh, we've been talking about Christology. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, Please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.